Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. Before we jump into a very interesting subject today, superlatives in science, uh, we have uh, some unfinished business from yesterday. If you recall, we'd uh, shown a spotlight. Shined? Is that the proper word? We we did spotlights um, for nonprofits and individuals doing good uh, in our communities. And uh, Susan Jealous uh, emailed me. Uh, she says, uh, here's some information about two local nonprofit organizations I've been working with. We're talking about Cache Valley. Number one, Adoptive Families Coalition. You can find them at adoptive.org, which provides services to families with adopted and foster children. They recently opened the Center on 3rd in Logan, which has a variety of programs, including art, music, ukulele and drumming, for example, training, and a lending library. So that's Adoptive Families Coalition at adoptive.org. Number two, she says, Leap of Cache Valley, which provides college scholarships and mentors for Latinx students. That's Leap of Cache Valley. Thanks, Susan, for that. Keep those coming to upraxcess at gmail.com. Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. The world's largest land mammal could help us end cancer. The fastest bird is showing us how to solve a century-old engineering mystery. The oldest tree is giving us insights into climate change. The loudest whale is offering clues about the impact of solar storms. For a long time, scientists ignored superlative life forms as outliers. Increasingly, though, researchers are coming to see great value in studying plants and animals that exist on the outermost edges of the bell curve. As it turns out, there's a lot of value in paying close attention to the oddballs nature has to offer. We're going to be talking about a new book. It's called Superlative, The Biology of Extremes. The author is a USU Associate Professor of Journalism at USU, Matthew LaPlante. He teaches news reporting, narrative nonfiction writing, and crisis reporting. He has reported from more than a dozen nations, including Iraq, Cuba, Ethiopia, El Salvador. His work has appeared in the Washington Post, Los Angeles Daily News, CNN.com, numerous other publications. He's co-author of two books on the intersection of science, discovery, and society. And um, this is his first uh, solo book. Matthew, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. Uh, so I want to have you read just at the outset your the the beginning of your introduction. You you uh, tell a personal story here. I wonder if you could read that for me. The the introduction is called "Nature's Best Ambassadors." She was a month old and already heavier than me, but she was faster too and more energetic. And when Zuri, the elephant, bolted from her mother's side, kicking up dust and hay and losing her footing a few times before reaching her tiny trunk toward my camera, I couldn't help but coo with delight. This was exactly what I'd wanted, after all. I had been covering national security issues for a newspaper in Salt Lake City for several years at the height of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq. I'd made three trips overseas to write about the latter conflict. I'd witnessed death, despair, and desolation, and back home I was swimming in news about fraud, abuse, hopelessness, and ineptitude. There was the rash of suicides at a local military facility, there was the service members sickened by working at a former Superfund site, and there was military funeral after military funeral after military funeral. I was sad and angry all the time, and I needed to do something about it. Once in a while, I asked my editor, do you think I could write about something happier? Something like what, he asked. Something like baby animals, I replied. <laughs> Get the hell out of my office, he said. 
<laughs> so you're the hard hitting reporter, right? He that's that's what he wants you to do, right? Yeah, I think. I mean, like, I I think he had he had plenty of compassion for my my plight, but also I had a lot on my table already. Yeah. And uh, at the time, we I mean, we had a lot of news to cover, mm-hmm. a lot of hard news to cover. Yeah. So to continue the story, um, he relents. After a few days. Right? He did. I, I bothered him for a few more days. And finally, he told me, um, okay, all right, so here's the deal. If you continue to do your job, and if you don't just cover baby animals at the zoo, but you cover all of the news from the zoo and all the news from all of the animal parks that are in Utah. And and there were there's three, basically. There's one in Logan, a small zoo in Logan. There's a larger zoo in Salt Lake City. And then there's... Uh, the nation's largest public aviary in Salt Lake City, the Tracy Aviary. So you, if you cover all those things, we can make that part of your beat. Mm-hmm. You keep doing what you're doing, and you can cover the zoo. And I was just like, I was over the moon. Like, I'm going to cover all the baby animals and the baby birds, and I'm going to drive up to you. Yeah. And what ends up happening is that I learn that it's not all happy news at the zoo. <laughs> Animals die. People screw up. Zookeepers sometimes make mistakes. Uh, you know, it, it, it's heartbreaking often. So it the joke was kind of on me because mm-hmm. I ended up covering just as much bad news as I was covering, you know, good, happy, you know, baby penguins, which I did. I got to meet baby penguins. Baby and penguins, I, And yeah. baby giraffes and all of that. Yeah. And it was really great. But, <laughs> but, yeah, the joke was on me. But that was how I fell in love with uh, – first sort of fell in love with uh, – writing about biology and writing mm-hmm. about animals and extreme animals because yeah. zoos are full of extreme animals. Yeah. Uh, very touching, your interaction with uh, Zuri, her name, right? Uh, Zuri baby, the elephant. Baby out of elephant. She's now older, right? Is she still there? Yeah, she's still there. Yeah. Mm-hmm. She's huge. Um, yeah. I go and visit her sometimes. We, we have lunch together. Yeah. Um, As you say, you do most of the talking. I do most of the talking. She doesn't talk a lot, but she comes over and, and I'm convinced she recognizes me. I, I don't know this for sure, but... But she comes over. But yeah, I got to meet her when she was just a few weeks old. Um, I saw, I got to see a video of her being born, which is fantastic. Uh, just like, it's just absolutely uh, amazing what happens to an elephant from gestation to birth and then from, from, from birth to, you know, those first few years. Mm-hmm. Um, Zuri's, a, you know, a few years old now. And she's huge. She's a full-grown elephant. Yeah. I just was reading uh, well, in the paper not long ago, uh, a poacher in Africa was stomped to death by an elephant uh, yeah. and, and eaten by lions. That's right, a, killed, by, <laughs> killed by an elephant and then eaten by a lion. Yeah. I mean, Double whammy. Nature, nature fights back. Yeah, boy. Yeah. That was, two, uh, elephant, two, two animals that are in our book, by the yeah. way. Yes, yes, indeed. <laughs> and there was kind of, it was interesting to see the, you know, the, not see it, but hear, see it reported. That there were people cheering, you know, good, he got, you know, he, he yeah. got killed. And then, and then there was a, a person who came in said, let's not celebrate, you know, there are reasons why people are kind of, it's an economic magnet in very uh, poor area. Right. You know, and and let's, let's, let's kind of pull back on the celebration that the guy died. But I think we can recognize the irony without engaging mm-hmm. in celebration over somebody's death. Yeah. So you... Uh, you said, I think it's true, uh, kids tend to really be extract, uh, attracted to extremes. Oh, yeah, I was, weren't you? I mean, like, yeah, yeah I mean, like, yeah. When, you, when you grow up, you know, my, one of my favorite books growing up was the Guinness Book of World Records. Um, and I, w- I would leave that through that thing again and again, and all my friends would talk about it. Um, you know, uh, driving into Logan, 
uh, to work at Utah State University on the side of the freeway, there used to be a big statue of a, uh, a fly fishing fly. And it was the world's largest statue of a fly fishing fly. And people would stop their cars. They would get out. They would go take pictures of it. They would get back in their cars and they would drive along, right? People who aren't fly fishermen, people who, but it was just something superlative. And we are naturally enamored by things that are on the extremes. Yeah. I, I mean, I would leave through Guinness Book of World Records. You, you said you'd leave through it. Interminably. Oh yeah, my my kid does mm-hmm. now too. I've got a copy. It's different now. It used to the one I had when I was a kid was this like thick, like it was like a Bible thick paperback uh, volume. It had a red cover, um, and uh, the one that's now on my desk is like this glossy thing full of pictures, and it's very exciting and um, different fonts and texts. And but uh, but still, it's it's amazing. I mean, like it is amazing what. You know what the world is capable of, what humans are capable of, on on the far extremes of things. Mm. And yeah, my my kid loves it too. But you say scientists have not been completely enamored, right? <laughs> Tell us about the Goliath frog. You you set that example. Yeah. So okay. Well, so we use frogs a lot to do research. Um, and a lot of people's first interaction with animals in biology is with frogs, right? Sometime in like between seventh and ninth grade in a biology class, you know, they slap a dead frog in front of us and they give us a knife and they go, go to it. Um, and, and the frogs that they give us for dissection are right in the middle of the size spectrum for frogs, right between the, the little tiny pencil eraser size frogs, it's the smallest frog in the world, and the largest frog in the world, which is the Goliath frog. And they are right in the middle of the metabolism spectrum. They eat kind of food that they need to eat, you know, to survive at that size. And, you know, if you check their jumping range and if you check their speed and if you check their their weight, it, it's all right in the middle of the spectrum. And this makes a lot of sense because if you're trying to understand an organism – uh, or, or or a genera of organism. If you're trying to understand all frogs or all dogs or all uh, mammals or all like whatever the thing is that you want to understand, shoot for the middle and then you can generalize from there. That makes a lot of sense. Um, and so scientists have gravitated towards studying things that are sort of average. And and again, that makes a lot of sense because you, you study the thing that's average and then you generalize from there. And then you can start moving your way toward the edges. Um, but for a long time, they didn't get to the extreme edges. Mm-hmm. Not very often. Yeah. And, and if they did, they would kind of, you know, people kind of shrug. Um, so one good example of this is the Goliath frog, uh, which uh, is exists uh, only in a very small area of Africa. It is the size of a house cat. These things are huge. <laughs> wow! They eat turtles. They eat other frogs. They eat bats. Um, and and the people like in Cameroon, they call them baby. They call them baby frogs because they are the size of a human infant. Mm. Um, but they're endangered. And they haven't been well studied. There's almost no scientific research on these things. We don't know how long they live. We don't know everything that they eat. We don't know where their best habitats are. Uh, They've likely lost their best habitats, so we'll probably never know. Scientists never got around to studying this thing, and it could be gone before we do. That would be sad in in and of itself. Um, 
you say scientists are now coming around. What what scientific value is there in studying the biggest, the fastest, the you know the superlatives? So let's turn back to the that same frog again. Yeah. Okay. So um, when we started understanding the role of telomeres in aging. Okay, these are the the, the end caps on chromosomes that that um, that science, a lot of scientists believe have a very uh, important place in how we age. We started with frogs. Okay, and we started with a frog that was right in the middle of the size spectrum. Okay, we didn't start and we didn't look at what frogs that grow oldest, what the oldest frogs do with these, right? So, um, and we don't even know who the oldest frogs are, but there's a pretty good bet that the oldest frog might also be the largest frog, the Goliath frog. The, the frog that'll, that can grow the oldest is also the one that can grow the biggest. And there's a lot of examples of this in, in biology. So there's a good chance that we'll never be able to know what role, uh, like what genetic role uh, uh, frogs have in helping us understand aging as a phenomenon because we don't have time to study these frogs before they disappear. Hmm. You uh, you made this connection on your show, uh, Undisciplined. I, I try right. to, yeah, yeah. I mean, so so I have a show on Utah Public Radio mm-hmm. called Undisciplined. We bring two scientists together from different fields, and then we try to help them understand, uh, or we try to help them communicate their science, but then we introduce them to each other, and we try to help them and our listeners, and, and frankly, me in the studio, because it's just fascinating, mm-hmm. uh, make connections between their research. And, and yeah, we're often making connections like this. Yeah. Uh, Friday afternoons at 2. Friday um, afternoons at 2. Utah Public Radio. Uh, we have with us Matthew LaPlante. He's Associate Professor of Journalism at Utah State University. Uh, his new book is called Superlative, The Biology of Extremes. Let's take a break, Matthew. And when we come back, I want to uh, maybe just uh, do a you know a, a fast burst of the, the coolest <laughs> stuff. You know, I imagine you find everything in the book cool, but maybe the, the top of the top, the, the superlatives of the, the superlatives. superlatives of cool. We can yeah, do that. Yeah. Uh, one that really uh, struck me, so I'm trying to read my notes here, the um, cigarette snail. And we'll just tease that. It's not because the, the snails smoke cigarettes. It's, it's, for a, a, <laughs> it's for a very interesting reason. Uh, we'll get to that and much more following this break. Programming on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our members and the USU School of Applied Sciences, Technology, and Education Farm Bureau Young Farmers and Ranchers Club helps students become impactful leaders, develop personal growth, and expand their opportunities in agriculture. This is Brian Erickson for Bringing More to Life. Some things never change. You arrive to visit, mom might offer unsolicited opinions on your weight and your wardrobe, and dad only starts a conversation if it has to do with the Aggies. The key is to love the best parts of them and to learn to accept the rest. You love your mom and dad, but when something is bothering you, resentment can eat away at your relationship. Communicate with gentleness and respect or redirect the conversation. We help our parents discover the meaning in their lives by encouraging them to talk about their accomplishments, the high points in their lives, and the joys and the sorrows they've experienced. Conversations can bring more to their lives in ways you never knew. Support for Bringing More to Life on Utah Public Radio is made possible in part by our listeners and the Sunshine Terrace Foundation in Logan, advancing wellness, independence, dignity, and comfort. Information at sunshineterrace.com. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. 
And uh, we're talking about a new book, Superlative, The Biology of Extremes. The author is USU Associate Professor of Journalism, uh, Matthew LaPlante. Um, so, Matthew, a lot of superlatives, obviously, in, uh, in the book. We teased the uh, cigarette snail, or the cone snail. Why is it called cigarette snail? The cigarette snail is one of a variety of cone snails that are incredibly venomous. Uh, perhaps one of the uh, most venomous in the world. Uh, and some people would make the case that it is the fastest acting uh, toxin in the world. And it's called the cigarette snail because, uh, as legend has it, if you get stung by one of these little guys, you have just enough time to smoke a cigarette before you die. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> stay away from them, right? Yeah. But um, but we shouldn't stay away from them. Yeah. I mean, actually, that's sort of the point. I mean, we, we should not like mess with right. them. Yeah. But biologists are in love with these things right now because they're... Uh, the, the poisons in their body, the toxins in their body, uh, are helping us unlock clues about how to create new medications. So, for instance, there's a uh, professor of biochemistry at the University of Utah, uh, Helena, Helena Savavi Hamami, uh, who studies the way that toxins in cone snail venoms can be used to develop therapeutics uh, like painkillers uh, that could be a replacement for opiates, which would be really important right now. I mean, could not be more important right now to find a painkiller that works faster and better than the opiates that are so often prescribed and even over-prescribed and have led to this this absolutely horrible epidemic of opiate addiction. Mm. An illustration central theme of the book, It's uh, we, there's a great scientific value in studying these extremes. Yeah, yeah, I think so. And I think a lot of scientists are coming to that conclusion mm. also, is that they're, they're, the, if you can find something that has evolved to be extreme, there are lessons that that thing can give us about solving other problems that we have in life. So what what are the what's the top of the top for you? That you you've studied a bunch of superlatives here. Um, you know I I gotta say like I go back to the cheetah, um, which is the the fastest land animal um, in in terms of actual uh, actual speed. There's a whole other uh, part of the book that talks about relative speed, and we can get into that too. Um, but uh, I went to a, a a nature conservation area in Ethiopia. Uh, where they're trying to rehabilitate some cheetahs, and I got to run with these guys. Mm. And you got to actually go out and run. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and it was—I mean, like, it, it's not a contest, right? Yeah, right. <laughs> but watching these things spring to action, from going to to laying around in the grass and the dirt to bolting—I mean, just like absolutely, like like pulling back at an arrow and just letting go—they move so fast it is so inspiring and and the lessons that we can get for for engineering uh for for designing uh for uh understanding how evolution worked like how did evolution lock the speed genes into cheetahs is a fascinating tale we're learning so much from looking at these animals that evolved to be fastest hmm. What about uh, the elephant is the largest land mammal? The elephant right? is is the largest land animal, and it's not just the largest land animal, but it's the largest thing to live on the surface of our planet in 65 million years. Wow. 
Um, and so I, I refer to it in the book as that evolutionary tightrope walker because, uh, you know, over evolutionary time, there is this phenomenon that um, it's, it's called Cope's Rule, where animals in a lineage tend to get bigger over time. And over time, it waxes and wanes and it goes up and down. But over time, animals in a lineage get bigger and bigger and bigger. But then they reach a point where it's not sustainable anymore. The limits of size have been reached. Um because they get slower, because they it takes a lot more time to gestate their young, because they need more food, they're not as nimble, they're not as right for a bunch of reasons. They do something that I call falling off Cope's cliff, which is they've just gotten too big. But the elephant is right at the precipice of that cliff, like right there, and it has managed to hold on despite the fact that it is so huge. Uh, and what can we learn? What what is science? learning from elephants. Well, I think one of the most amazing things that science is learning from elephants right now is, look, in order to get from the size an elephant is when it's born to the size it is when it's an adult, to get from the size that Zuri, the baby elephant we were talking about earlier, was when I first met her to the size she is now, thousands upon thousands of pounds, um, your cells have to be dividing like mad, right? Dividing and dividing and dividing. And that is really a recipe for cancer, or it should be a recipe for cancer. So here's a big question that scientists have had for, for some time, but never really gotten to solving is, why don't elephants die of cancer more often? And in fact, why don't they die of cancer at all? Elephants almost never get cancer. And there's a researcher, again, at the University of Utah named Josh Schiffman, who is working on solving this mystery. He works in the, the Huntsman Cancer Center, and he has honed in on a gene that elephants have and that we also share. It's a gene called P53 that works in elephants a little different than it works in us. It, it, in us, this gene helps order up a fix-it crew to, to fix cells when they've mutated. In elephants, it orders up a hit squad it kills those cells. Mm. And so when cells mutate in in cancerous ways, they burst, they mm. go away. And so now he's trying to figure out like, how can we take this gene from elephants and how can we make the gene in our own bodies act in the same way as it does in elephants, essentially killing off cancer. Yeah. We may learn the secret to ending cancer from the world's largest land animal. Very cool. Very cool. If you just joined us, so we're talking with Matthew LaPlante. His new book is uh, Superlative, The Biology of Extremes. So uh, we'll go connecting science, of course, to, to the superlatives, but I want to, to take a step back. Uh, you know, you see an elephant, it's just cool. It's just, uh, it, it triggers a response in us that, uh, that you know, is so big, so big, and, and to know they're the biggest, you know, land animal. There, there's, there's, there's wonder. There's awe there. There, there is. There's a lot of awe, and I think that that's the for me the thing that's uh, that drove me to want to write this book uh, to to go around the world and, and kind of meet these creatures uh, and um, understand them a little better and see how science is using them. Is I'm just filled with such a sense of awe. Um, and I was I was talking to a, a fellow a, a fellow science book writer, a uh, biologist uh, from Pennsylvania, Oni Pagan, uh, for a taping of our show that'll air in a few weeks, I think. Um, 
and uh, we we came to the same place uh, where he he called it wonder, I called it awe, but it was the same thing. It was this sense that we are in the midst of something great, and when you're in the midst of something great, and especially you know, like for me, like I grew up in a religious household, um, and so. You know, I would get that sense every Sunday. I'd show up for church and the pastor would say something or the choir would sing something and I would be filled with this sense of awe. And then as I got older, my life took me away from my religious background and that's fine. But I was missing that, right? I was missing that sense of awe. And I found it again in the natural world. And and I think a lot of people can do that. Whether you're religious or not religious or whatever, I think a lot of people can find that sense of awe that we're all really craving uh, in these really magnificent creatures. Um, so uh, tell me about another, of uh, you know, the best of the best. <laughs> the best of do the you? best. I mean, like I'm fascinated by the Peregrine Falcon, which can dive at uh, speeds exceeding 200 miles an hour. Uh, it can dive so fast, in fact, that it's falling at the rate of a of a soccer field every second. Um, the way that uh, researchers figured this out was uh, this guy in Washington decided he was going to teach his falcon, his pet falcon, to go skydiving with him. Because from the ground, you can't you can't really get a good fix on how fast a falcon is diving, let alone it, its maximum diving speed. Because by the time they're close enough to like pick up with a radar gun or whatever, they've already you know like stopped falling so that they don't smack into the ground. Mm-hmm. Um, so this this guy in Washington, uh, who was an amateur pilot and an amateur falconer and an amateur scientist, decided, hey, you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to put a little accelerometer on my falcon's tail feathers, and I'm going to teach it to dive out of a plane with me, and then uh, I'm going to drop a lure, and then it's going to chase the lure, and we'll get an actual an actual speed count. Um, and and you know, then he took this. He, he took videos of it, and he took all these calculations, and he brought them to Boeing, and he brought them to uh, Airbus. He brought them to all of the airplane manufacturers and designers and engineers he could, and they all kind of shrugged. They said, well, "We we stopped paying attention to birds to learn lessons about flight way back in the Wright brothers' days. They were important then, but there's nothing else we can learn. Like, so congratulations for diving so fast with your Falcon. That's really clever and cute, but." We don't need this information. And then a few years ago, these German uh, engineering students came upon this guy's videos. And they started looking at him and they thought, well, maybe there is something that we can learn. And um, lo and behold, what they've found through a series of experiments and and engineering and wind tunnels and just like a, a whole bunch of science is that when a peregrine falcon dives – um, kind of almost sort of nonsensically or, or, or uh, counterintuitively, I should say, some feathers on its back, instead of being really sleek, as you, you might think, in order for it to get speed, they pop up. And they mm. pop up to interrupt the wind flow, which in turn interrupts the stall, which uh, is a century old, longer than a century old problem of aviation. And as soon as they found this out, everybody went, Oh, well, wait, we can use that. Maybe we can use this to help fix the problem of stall that we have on still today on airplanes and helicopters. And so they've developed, they, they are developing a little pop-up spring, a little flap that sort of looks like the feathers on a peregrine falcon's back that pops up on the top of 
airplane wings in order to interrupt stall when the angle of attack gets too too large. Wow, amazing. That's that is amazing. Um, and I think this attitude, uh, you know, sometimes scientists have this attitude. I think we, we, I have this attitude sometimes. You know, hey, I in, in this particular area, I know everything I need to know, and so that's a barrier. Oh, it's it's an absolute barrier. It really is. It's probably the biggest barrier. Um, and probably the dumbest thing we do as as discoverers, as scientists, as people in general, is make the assumption that we know all there is to know. That we, we don't, we, and we, yeah. we never will. And when we get to that place, it's, it's a really exciting place to be. Hmm. As you're talking about the Peregrine Falcon, uh, my mind went to hummingbirds. Uh, is that a superlative? Is, you know, fastest moving wings? Yeah, I, don't I know, think it's, you know? it's not one in my book, yeah. but uh, I do understand their heartbeats are incredibly fast. Uh, their wings are incredibly fast. And, and the hummingbird, and I think maybe a lot of people know this, but I've always been fascinated with this, um, can move. It moves more like a uh, a helicopter than it does an airplane. It can move up and down and backwards and forwards, and it can hover. Um, and it doesn't need, because its wings are moving so fast, it actually doesn't need any air to fly. It just it can basically uh, do all of this without any airflow. Mm-hmm. What uh, are there central themes in the reasons why animals get you know biggest fastest you know hummingbird that you got to get into to get the nectar for example right right um, are there any themes that run through these superlatives I think one of the themes is that we're always evolving in the direction of one extreme or another right um, because we evolve toward open space right we evolve into ecological uh, niches that can sustain us and by us i mean like all organisms in the world we evolve toward uh, ecolo- ecological niches that can sustain us um, that are not being taken by another organism uh, so in the example of the elephant or the blue whale there's always room at the top there is a there is a biggest but there's always room up there for something bigger Right, and so we, we. This is like kind of one of the explanations for Cope's rule, which is that the thing I was talking about earlier, where animals tend to get larger over time in a single lineage. Is there's always room at the top to evolve there. There's also always room at the bottom. You can always get a little smaller as long as there's food down there somewhere. Mm-hmm. You can always get a little smaller. Yeah. Um, you can always get faster, right? Like like the cheetah will if if our planet exists. And continues to exist for you know tens of millions, hundreds of more millions a year. The cheetah will not end up being the fastest land animal, <laughs> right? <laughs> that illustrates that one reluctance perhaps scientists have to studying superlatives is if you hit your wagon to that star, and maybe in part for that reason, uh, and then that animal gets surpassed. Oh yeah, like, scientists are really reticent to ever take claim to have discovered something superlative. Mm-hmm. You know, and this is good. This is like this is responsible science. Is is not saying I have discovered the fastest, or I have discovered the the largest, or I have discovered the uh, slowest evolving, or whatever the su- superlative is, because you are bound to be corrected. Um, and in fact, I I was talking to a guy who had discovered the world's smallest yet discovered vertebrate which is a little tiny micro frog um and he he was very clear that it was just the smallest vertebrate yet discovered mm-hmm. um because he said look like the last thing that was the smallest vertebrate yet discovered was a little fish and then my little frog came along 
but we're going to find another little frog or more likely we're going to find an even smaller fish because the ocean is a huge, largely unexplored place. Um, and I, it, that is important. It's important not to say, hey, you know, we know for a fact that this is the most superlative thing of all time. Um, and it leaves a little room for discovery. Yeah. And, yeah. Um, you know, I, I write in the book, you know, the blue whale is the largest organism that we know of to ever live on our planet, ever, at any time. Larger than the dinosaurs, larger than any of the dinosaurs. Um, and, and to me, that's, by the way, it's inspiring. Like, we live on this planet at the same time as the largest thing to ever live on this planet. Mm-hmm. It's mind-blowing to me. Um, but you got to leave a little wiggle room because you you never quite know. We're pretty sure. We're pretty sure it's the largest thing ever to live on our planet. But the moment that you're really sure is the moment that somebody comes along and goes, hey, I discovered this dinosaur. <laughs> <laughs> right. Um, well, let's talk about the blue whale. So this is, we're getting to, if this is the largest ever, yeah, ever, ever, then it's interesting to explore the limits of evolution for size, right? Well, so the ocean certainly, um, so let's talk about the evolutionary history of whales, right? Whales did not start in the ocean. I mean, we all started kind of in the ocean and then we left the ocean and we went back to the ocean. Whales were land creatures at one time that went back into the ocean. Um, so at one time we, we need to remember these were creatures that were limited to the, um, physical forces that exert themselves and the biological forces that exert uh, environmental forces that exert themselves on land animals and then they went in the ocean and the ocean is a very different environment and it has essentially released whales from a lot of those constraints um it would be very hard for an organism to get as large as a blue whale on the surface of the planet um, and certainly a blue whale couldn't look like a blue whale on the surface. So you couldn't have a blue whale that just happened to have legs. It wouldn't work. Um, but in the ocean environment, the rules change. Mm-hmm. And, and that shifting of rules has allowed for this creature to, to grow so big. But even in the ocean, there are limits. Certainly. Obviously, you know, the certainly. blue whale... I guess, but for those limits would be even larger, I but suppose. Perhaps, you know, or yeah. we, we might not know. And this is mm-hmm. another this is another theme of the book. We might not ever know because we came along and we have exerted a huge toll on whales in general in our ocean, including blue whales. Um, we don't know if the blue whale what, had reached its max or evolutionarily it was still moving towards something that was even more superlative. Uh, and we, we never will. Um, but, uh, what we do know is that, uh, that right around the time that we showed up, um, they had grown to this size that made them the largest thing ever. And, and who knows, right. Who knows how much bigger they could have been. Yeah. Well, let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about, uh, possibly the largest living organism, Pando right here in, uh, yeah. but it could be rivaled by what we call the humongous fungus, which is a, that's a great branding you know label uh let's talk about pando and the humongous fungus when we come back the book is uh superlative the biology of extremes and a usu professor of journalism matthew laplante is the author and he's with us in studio more following this break Programming on Utah Public Radio is brought to you in part by our members and Rocky Mountain Power, supporting education, innovation, and clean transportation solutions for Utah. Details at rockymountainpower.net slash ev. 
Max Minghella comes from a show business family. His father was the acclaimed director Anthony Minghella, so it's interesting that the first film he's directed skewers the world of show business a little bit, specifically reality TV. Max will tell you why this is the story he wanted to tell. That's coming up on Q from PRI Public Radio International. That's this afternoon at 1 o'clock here on Utah Public Radio. This week in This American Life, everyone in their hometown was supposed to evacuate before friends decided to try to hold off a wildfire on their own with just whatever tools they've got. There is a house and the cedar fence is all on fire and Sam has a chainsaw and is chainsawing parts of the fence and kicking them over. Stories of people left behind this week. Saturday morning at 11 on Utah Public Radio. Thanks for listening to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. We've reached our last segment with Matthew LaPlante. His book is Superlative, The Biology of Extremes. It's the biggest, fastest, loudest, deadliest book you'll ever read. I'm reading on the cover here, so uh, I'm, I'm happy to have, to have read it. Um, so, uh, Matthew LaPlante, before we get to Pando and the humongous fungus, um, I want to take you back to the reason this all started. You, 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 know, you report from, you know, uh, war zones and some pretty depressing stuff. Um, and, and so in the book, you say that you take advantage of the opportunity when you're out and about to take excursions and go do some science. Yeah, a, a little bit of the travel for this book was made intentionally for the purpose of writing this book. And a lot of it was tacked on to other trips that I had for other reporting assignments. Uh, where I find myself in a place and say, oh, well, like there's there's something near here that I can go and see. There's an, an amazing animal or an amazing plant or whatever. Um, and uh, that's how you make the process of reporting a book a little cheaper. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I understand, understand. Um, I do want to take a little, a very brief side trip uh, because it's so, so, so timely. Uh, you study gang violence in Central America. I, I do. Well, I've reported on gang you, violence in yeah. Central America. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, I've spent uh, a, a bit of time in El Salvador um, and have have written uh, a few pieces uh, about the factors that lead people to uh, flee. Yeah. And um, it's it's absolutely devastating from your from your viewpoint is it is that the biggest reason um yeah absolutely i mean i think a lot of a lot of americans make an assumption that people are uh coming up for economic opportunities um that from one perspective that that's a commonsensical assumption to make because uh our experience with migration from uh, country south of our border has long been an experience with people who are coming up for economic opportunities, like many of our families did. Like, well, like frankly, all of our families did at one time or another, unless we're Native American. Um, but uh, what we have coming from Central America right now is nothing short of a refugee crisis. Mm-hmm. Um, I can't tell you how many people I've talked to who have said, like, I, I'm fine here. I was fine here. Like I'm, I was not hurting economically here. I was not looking to move my family. And in fact, they're not moving their family. A lot of times they're just trying to move their kids because it is so violent and so deadly. And it is, it is a war. 
Oh, it's a gang war, but it is a war. It is a war zone. People are dying. People are dying in horrifically bloody, horrible ways. Children are dying. Um, and what we're what we're looking at is not a situation where people are going, oh, I want to go and I want to immigrate illegally so that I can like, you know, work on a farm somewhere. That's maybe where people end up if if they're lucky, quite frankly. But they're not leaving for those opportunities. They're leaving for the opportunity to live. Mm. And why is it getting worse? It seems to be getting worse. Um, you know, it 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 waxes and wanes. Um, and uh, I don't know what the recent numbers are, so I can't say definitively uh, if the violence is is worse right now than it was a year ago, or two years ago, three years ago. Um, I can say that just a few years ago, uh, El Salvador, for instance, was the deadliest country in the western hemisphere the only nation that had a murder rate that was higher was uh syria Mm. um and uh and and the factors are myriad but uh they come down to really uh, a very weak government uh a lucrative drug trade um the ex spelling of gang members from the United States back to Central America uh, in the 80s and 90s and early 2000s. It's it's a it's a perfect storm. Uh, So just one more question on this. And I I think I probably know your view on this. Uh, So say the Trump administration uh, acts to reduce aid to those governments yeah it's not Maybe. gonna help okay <laughs> it's, yeah i i don't think uh I, um i i don't think in any permutation whatsoever i i can see and i think i would i think struggle to find any scholars that would disagree um that a good solution for reducing the number of migrants coming uh, refugees really coming to the united states from these countries is to stop our efforts in those countries to stabilize their economy and provide opportunity and to uh help people retrain and to help uh i mean it helps sustain prisons and helps us i mean like it's it doesn't make a lot of sense to me okay well uh a brief side excursion there because it's, it's just so timely we'll, we'll probably do a Full episode on this, Certainly. Uh, not not too uh, far distant future. But uh, the book is Superlative, The Biology of Extremes. And the way I got into that was uh, you go reporting, then sometimes you take these side trips, kind of try to restore your soul in part, right? That, yeah, that's very much a, that's a good way to put it. Yeah. Um, so let's talk about uh, coming back to Utah. We we have a claim to fame here. Pando, tell us about yeah, well, Pando. so, and this is really one of the things that uh, maybe the most important thing that got me on uh, the the journey toward writing this book is I woke up one night and I had this question in my mind. And the question was like, what is the world's oldest thing? And and I don't know why, like I like in my mind, I thought oh, it's got to be like like a turtle or a tortoise, right? They live longer than anything else. And I hadn't even, I wasn't even thinking about trees. I don't know why I wasn't thinking about trees. So I roll over my bed and I open up my laptop and I Google, you know, like what is the world's oldest organism and it's not a turtle not by any stretch of the imagination there's a lot of things that have lived longer um but the answer is that there is no answer we're, we're actually not really sure but one guess one pretty good guess is that it is this interconnected aspen clone in central utah 
um, which is not only perhaps one of, if not the oldest living organism in the world, but also the largest uh, ever discovered. Um, because these are so these are aspen trees and aspen trees grown clonally which means they grow underground and they shoot up and so what you're looking at when you look at what most of us would call a trunk of a tree is actually a stem of a larger organism and the majority of the organism actually lives underground and, and what we see is is just a part of it that's stretching up for sunlight um, and it is a hundred plus acres in size it is absolutely enormous. And so, you know, like I, I closed my computer and it's just like I couldn't sleep the rest of the night. I thought, but this is amazing. This thing is so close to me. I've got to go see it. And and so I did. Like a few days later, I packed up my car and I went down. It was just a few hours trip. And I was just so enamored by this thing. And then I learned that some researchers here at Utah State University were studying it. And so... I, you know, being a reporter gives you an excuse to be nosy. So I called them up and I said, hey, I want to talk to you about this thing. This is amazing. And of course, like researchers who study extreme things, they just want to talk about it. Hmm. So it was no problem setting up interviews uh, with, with Paul Rogers and Karen Mock, two of the scientists who have done research on this organism. And um, I learned that it's dying. And the, this thing that has been around for, by some estimates, tens of thousands of years, and which has grown to, by some estimates, be the largest organism in our world, is dying. And it's dying right around the time that we came around. How interesting is that, mm -hmm. right? Um, and so I decided, because I'm a journalist and this is what I do, I'm going to write a story about this. So I wrote a story for uh, the Alternative Weekly in uh, Salt Lake City, City Weekly. And um, and that really became the starting point for me to start thinking, like, I'll bet that's a, you know, like, that could be a chapter in a book. And I'll bet there are other things that are maybe not largest. Maybe, maybe they're fastest or maybe they're smallest or maybe they're slowest or maybe they're the slowest evolving or maybe they uh, metabolize slower or faster than anything else or maybe they sleep longer, whatever that is. And um, a few years later, we had a book. Yeah, and here it is, uh, Superlative, The Biology of Extremes. Matthew Lapine is with us. Uh, tell us about the humongous fungus. So the which, humongous, which is, which is not the scientific term, I don't think, <laughs> right? But it's a, a large <laughs> fungus that grows over uh, a dozens, if not hundreds, of acres in Oregon. There's another one of these in Michigan uh, that once made the claim to be the largest uh, singular organism in the world. It, these are singularly genetic, and it's really hard to know whether or not they are interconnected. Um, in in all parts, so it's like like the humongous fungus may be like a whole bunch of twins and triplets and quadruplets, um, but it is the the largest singularly genetic organism in the world. Uh, it spreads out over over many miles in Oregon, and at various times of the year, it takes in a lot more water because it's in bloom, right? And so when it's in bloom, the little the little mushrooms come up and and it becomes the largest, the heaviest organism in the world rivaling pando. Um and and there's a little bit of a debate about this and it's a very good-natured debate among scientists. I don't think anybody's got too many egos involved, although maybe there's a, a <laughs> <laughs> a little bit of ego involved, but I don't think there's a lot of ego involved. Mostly, it's it's good nature, and what, that's mm -hmm. what I found with all of these organisms is that, um, you know, whether 
you know, when it's a, a frog or a fish vying for smallest vertebrate or whether uh, there's a debate about whether the cheetah is the fastest animal or whether we should look at actually we should look at relative speed. And so this little mite in Southern California is the fastest animal. Scientists are pretty good natured about it. Mm-hmm. Uh, let's talk about that mite. Uh, you uh, we were talking before we went on the air that 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 mite was discovered by an undergraduate. Yeah, this is this, this kid. So, and you, you, you make a point in the book, kind of a plea, everybody can do science, everyone, you say. Yeah, absolutely. So so this uh, this young man at Pomona College in Southern California is, as I understand it, basically just walking down the street one day, and he looks down and he sees these, these little tiny, they're almost like flecks of dust. You can't really see them. But you can see them moving and jostling around, and the only way you know that they're not flecks of dust is that they they move erratically they don't move with the wind they're they're running literally running on the side actually literally they're walking Mm -hmm. because they don't actually ever have all of their legs leave the ground so they're they're speed walking Mm -hmm. on these sidewalks in southern california and everybody knows these things if you've lived in southern california if you've ever looked down you've probably seen these little mites you don't give a second thought to this well, this guy did. He decided he wanted to study them. So he tried to catch some of them. They're really hard to catch. Um, but once they had some of them, they basically put them on, you know, like a white mat and then trained a video camera, like a high-speed video camera on them, and then followed them and did the calculations. And this young undergraduate, with the help of, of, a, of a professor there, discovered the organism that we now consider to be the fastest organism in the world in terms of relative speed. Uh, The equivalent speed for like an organism the size of a human being would be 1,300 miles per hour. To put that into context, most super jets can't go 1,300. (laughs) Like most military aircraft can't go 1,300 miles an hour. That's a a very rare feat. Um, And these things walk. Mm. At thirteen hundred miles an yeah. hour, and we're learning all kinds of things about like about engineering. How do these things like how do their arms not rip off, right? When they're turning, when they're when they're running, how do they have the energy that required to produce that kind of speed? Uh, and then the the great question, the big question: What are they chasing? <laughs> yeah, why are they speed walking? Right, right? Yeah. and we don't we don't know yet. Yeah. Uh, we just have a couple of minutes uh, left, and uh, you say. Uh, a superlative might be in your backyard. It very well could be. Um, there are, for instance, there are tardigrades uh, all over. These are microscopic uh, little creatures that are, for my money, the toughest animals in the world. Uh, they can withstand uh, lots of radiation. They can be shot into the vacuum of space. They can be frozen. They can be boiled. These things do not die. They shrink into these little forms called tons, which are essentially just a shell of what they were. Um, like 2% of the water weight, and they can wait out really, really harsh conditions for a very long time. And then when those harsh conditions go away, they come back. Um, and so absolutely fascinating organisms. They are all over the place. People are discovering them all over the place uh, in moss everywhere. And so if you have moss growing in your backyard, there's a good chance that a superlative organism may be one that has never been described by science before. A new species could be in your backyard. Um, But it could be, you know, it could be a bird. It could be uh, a snail. It could be there's so many different ways to think about 
extreme evolution. Um, that once we open our eyes to the fact that it's not just biggest, fastest, loudest, deadliest in the ways that we might commonly think, once we kind of open up our eyes to that, the more possibilities emerge that we might be able to find the next one. That's 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 very cool. Very cool. Well, we've reached the end of our time. Uh, we didn't even get to talk about howler monkeys or ghost sharks, which I wanted to. We do have to go to the book. They, for, for I, that. That's 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 yeah, great. They, Good. They, they have something to <laughs> a reason to and, buy it, and still. much more, much more. Superlative: The Biology of Extremes. USU Associate Professor of Journalism Matthew Laplante is the author and has been with us. So Matthew, it's been a pleasure. Thank you. Thank so you. Much. Likewise. Thanks, Tom. And uh, coming up on Monday. Um, we hope you'll join us for our annual Earth Day program. We, uh, every time we talk with Stephen Trimble, author of Bargaining for Eden, The Fight for the Last Open Spaces in America. He's a prominent uh, Utah photographer and writer. We'll have him along with uh, Westminster professor, retired Westminster professor David Stanley. Uh, Stephen Trimble and David Stanley are uh, editors of books in the recent National Parks Readers series. We'll explore the literature surrounding national parks, talk about overcrowding, crumbling infrastructure, national park policy, and much more. That'll be coming up on uh, Monday. Hope you'll join us then. Thanks for listening today. The Trump presidency continues to be divisive, not just for Americans, but for the GOP itself. The founder of the Republican Party, the real founder, Abraham Lincoln, talked about the better angels of our nature. We have a president who every day consistently appeals to the very opposite. I'm John Donvan. On the next Intelligence Squared U.S., four debaters go head-to-head on the renomination of Donald Trump. Friday morning at 10 on Utah Public Radio. A service of the College of Humanities and Social Sciences at Utah State University, this is Utah Public Radio. Heard statewide on KUSR, Logan, KUSK, Vernal, KUSL, Richfield, KUST, Moab, KCEU, Price, and KUSUFM, Logan. UPR is everywhere you are. With classical music programming, news and information statewide through 36 signals, worldwide on the web at upr.org and through the online app. UPR is only a push of the button away.